Michael Franti there, Rock the Nation. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, former Senator Brian Gregg joins us and we chat with April Holcomb from Community Action for Rainbow Rights. And we do have Brian Gregg on the line, joining us from Bustleton in southwest WA. Brian, welcome to the program. Thank you, James, and hello to 3CR listeners. So great to chat with you. I think the last time you and I chatted on air was about 20 years ago when you were in the Senate. <laughs> Lots of water under the bridge since then. So much has changed, hasn't it? I, it's, it, as I get older, I find life, life going so much faster. So I've, I've now been out of Parliament for 16 years. Um, uh, and, of course, the Democrats, the party I was um, uh, uh, involved with, uh, no longer exists. So we're, we're in a very different political environment. And, of course, you're very involved in the activist group Just Equal. I am, James. I, um, I, I've got LGBTI politics in my blood, if you like. I activist and agitator and campaigner around these issues for nearly 30 years. Um, it's a bit of an occupational uh, uh, preoccupation, really. It's, it's a hobby rather than a job, but I, I keep my hand in. And, of course, that became very relevant just recently in Western Australia with our state election. Absolutely. A landslide win for the McGowan government. Do you think that will embolden them to pass more LGBTIQ law reforms beyond the conversion therapy ban they committed to? Uh, well, they're actually very weak uh, on the the conversion ban stuff as well. So they still need some pushing there. They, but they have only indicated, and there's no firm commitment, that if they do move ahead, and they said this prior to the election and not after, if they do move ahead on it with a ban on conversion practices, it would only apply to formal medical settings and not informal religious settings. So that's basically the Queensland model, which I think has been, which we know has been understandably criticised and, and denounced as being woefully inadequate. So there's a lot of pushing that still needs to be done on the McGowan government. It's not just that issue. Um, we also have the law in Western Australia, as you do in, in Victoria, which says that faith schools can uh, expel gay kids and sack LGBT t- teachers. Um, uh the, the government also um, defunded or, uh, the, the Safe Schools Program a year ago, or Inclusive Education, as it's now called in WA. Um, we don't have any anti-vilification laws that cover incitement to hatred um, for LGBTI people. Um, and the other big thing is um, uh, there's long overdue law reform needed here for people who are transgender. So uh, those people are generally not covered by the Equal Opportunity Act, the protections of the Equal Opportunity Act, and they find it very difficult, sometimes impossible, to get um, uh, proper identity documents um, uh, to reflect who they truly are. So there's a whole suite of reforms that are needed, and the government has made no firm commitment on any of them. Of course, Mark McGowan could change all of that. He's got a whopping majority in the lower house and a majority in the upper house. Uh, No excuses now. All those reforms could happen this term. They could, but it still needs the, pol- the political will. Um, your, your listeners may know that WA has has had a, a gerrymander. We've had a, an unequally weighted upper house um, since it was first formed. And as a consequence, it's extremely rare for Labor governments, even when they have huge swings to them, to get the numbers in the upper house as well. And that has always been the stumbling block. It's always been the, the problem with getting... Um, LGBTI law reform through the West Australian Parliament, and that is the Upper House. And the Upper House has on numerous occasions 
rejected these sorts of reforms going back uh, 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and as a consequence, Labor governments have always been really reluctant, really hesitant to advance these reforms, uh, even debate them, raise them and debate them in the parliament, because they say, uh, behind the scenes, they say, look, we, send, we spend so much political capital on this, we invest a lot of time, a lot of energy, and it just gets filibustered in the upper house and voted down, and so we, we're just not going to do it. At least that's the excuse they give. I've often thought that there's more to it than that, and sometimes they have their, their own internal issues, um, particularly with the, the right faction, the Catholic faction of the party, which is a lot weaker than it used to be, um, and, and some consideration, too, to some of the outer suburban seats, which are a bit, can be a bit churchy. Um, and I think it's been easy. It's been convenient to point to the upper house and say, oh, that's, that's the problem, Brian. That's, you know, we, we can't do it because of the upper house. Well, they can't say that anymore. So now the pressure is really on for the re-elected McGowan government with its huge numbers uh, in both the lower and the upper house to actually do something comprehensive. Will Mark McGowan reform the upper house? I mean, he'd be mad not to, wouldn't he? Yes, he will. Um, The last time Labor broke into the upper house was 2001, so it's been 20 years. Um, There was a huge swing to the government at that election, the Gallup Labor government. Um, Labor didn't get the numbers in the upper house, but the Greens, there were there were three Greens, I think, two or three, and they held balance of power. And so they were able to work cooperatively with the Labor government to get some really good stuff through. And that's when the very first tranche of gay law reform went through the West Australian Parliament. So it wasn't until 2001 when we got decriminalisation, anti-discrimination laws, partnership recognition, adoption for same-sex couples and access to the family court. Um, WA has a separate and distinct family court to the rest of the country. So all of that stuff happened in 2001. But even then, the government still didn't go the whole hog and do everything. So, for example, as good as the reforms were 20 years ago, they didn't include stopping faith schools from expelling gay kids and sacking gay teachers. And that's because of the internal politics of Labor at the time. But the other thing that they tried to do back then with the Greens was to get through electoral law reform, to abolish the gerrymander. But they were unable to get the Greens to agree on a particular model, and so it kind of fell over. There was some tinkering at the edges of electoral law reform, but nothing of substance. On this occasion, Labor doesn't have to work with any micro-party. They can do exactly what they want. So I would expect that the reforms that Labor attempted 20 years ago but didn't achieve will simply re-emerge, and they'll sail through Parliament this time. Mark McGowan's made a commitment to govern from the centre. Are you concerned that that will mean that his government is not adventurous on LGBTIQ issues? I do have that concern because that has been their pattern of behaviour over the last four years. But to be fair, four years is not a long time. Um, And of course, during that four years, Labor didn't have the upper house. So they needed to be judicious with what they said and cautious with how they went about it. They can be much more bold this time. And one of the tasks that our community has, the LGBTI community has, is to demonstrate to Labor that there is support for these reforms because the evidence is there. Um, Every single electorate, every single federal electorate in Western Australia voted yes to marriage equality during the 2017 postal survey. And the overall result in Western Australia was higher than the national average. 
So that, I think, illustrates that West Australians do believe in fairness and equality. They are supportive of our community and that Labor doesn't need to be worried about it. The other concern Labor has expressed is, oh, you know, those, those outer suburban seats, we've got a handful of outer suburban seats. They're very churchy. We're, we've got, we mustn't upset them. Well, the fact is that one of the most outer suburban seats in Perth, one of the most churchy suburban seats in Perth, in fact, it's politically dominated by uh, Peter Abetz, the brother of Federal Senator Eric Abetz, um, who was himself... So Peter Abetz was himself a few years ago a Member of Parliament um, before he was voted out. He's now the WA representative of the Australian Christian Lobby. So there's a strong fundamentalist belt in Perth's southeastern corridor. But that seat had the biggest swing to Labor in the recent state election. And the sitting member, Terry Healy, was the first person in Australia to conduct a legal same-sex marriage. Uh, and he's very open about that. He's a great advocate of, of our community, a great ally. So Labor can, they can no longer run the argument that the upper house is a problem, and they can no longer run the argument that outer suburban churchy seats are a problem because the evidence shows that they're not. You mentioned all those issues that need reform. Uh, which is the one that you think the McGowan government should prioritise? Look, there, there are a range. Um, I suppose Just Equal did a survey of our community and basically said, look, these are the main areas, six or seven main areas of law reform where WA has fallen behind other states and needs to catch up. How would you rank them? So we did that online survey before the election. Um, another lobby group in Perth called Rainbow Futures, they did a very similar thing, some slightly different questions. But both surveys achieved basically the same result. They both attracted around 340, 350 responses. And the themes that came through were very clear. So our community has said that the most important issues for them are banning conversion practices, fixing up uh, discrimination and identity issues for transgender and for intersex people, uh, banning church schools from discriminating, so getting rid of the special religious exemptions in faith schools. Uh, and then the other issues that came through was, was the need for anti-vilification laws and fixing up the surrogacy laws, which discriminate against um, male couples, same-sex male couples. Um, and then outside of that, outside of those law reform issues in terms of general policy areas, um, the community over here wants to see much better uh, funding and resources for services, uh, health services, mental health services, those sorts of things. But there's also a great passion over here for the Safe Schools Program or the Inclusive Education Program, as it was called, and people really want to see money come back to that. Brian, of course, it was a pretty dark day for the Senate yesterday with One Nation's motion basically relegating trans and gender-diverse folks to being second-class citizens. You, of course, were a senator during the Howard years, during the 2000s, for the Democrats. What was your response to that kind of um, attitude that was expressed, which the government supported? Uh, you must have been wringing your hands together going, this is just so transphobic. <laughs> yeah, it is. But, I, I, look, I come... I urge people not to get too concerned about this. All that happened in the Senate the other day was a, was, was a, was a statement. The Senate made a statement. They just went blah and said something. It has no legislative impact. Um, there are all kinds of motions that, that dozens and dozens every year that go through the Senate where various senators of various parties want to make a point about something. So they say, we support this or we oppose that. You know, pick any issue. These things happen on a weekly basis. And One Nation clearly, particularly following the, the Mark Latham staff in the New South Wales Upper House, they've decided to... to 
to, to kick around with transgender issues. Um, they've taken it straight from the playbook from the religious right in America. So they put up this statement basically affirming, encouraging and affirming this kind of transphobic nonsense, which is becoming more familiar to us all, I'm sure. And it was deeply disappointing that the coalition voted for that and that it got through the Senate, but it has no impact. It, these things are done purely to play to the gallery. One Nation is simply trying to scoop up votes from people by making gestures. Um, so they're really making gestures to the religious right, to the religious conservatives, sticking a flag in the sand and saying, hey, this is where we stand, why don't you vote for us? And the reason the coalition supported it is because they're trying to neutralise that. They're trying to pull those back, those votes back to the coalition in the hope that they won't drift off to One Nation. Um, but it, it, it's disappointing that it happened, but it doesn't have any legislative impact. I mean, unless, of course, the government, if it wanted to, um, they could now issue a directive to the relevant organisations and say, um, this motion has been passed, the government agrees with, it, agrees with it, and you must now do this, this and this. Technically, that, I think, theoretically could happen. Whether it does is another matter. And I guess, you know, it fell right into the government's, you know, playbook of trying to find any distraction to take them away from their Christian Porter woes. Yeah, look, that, that does come into it. But, of course, this didn't come from the government. It came from One Nation. So I think it was more accident than design. Um, but it's true that sometimes um, the major parties, both of them, uh, like to use LGBTI issues as a distraction from other things. We've witnessed that in Western Australia a couple of times at, at, at a state level. Um, but I think on this occasion it was something which One Nation had been cooking up for some time. And they're doing it to, to marry in with the same stuff that they're doing um, at the same time in New South Wales. You must be very concerned about the looming return of the government's religious discrimination bill. Uh, are you doing much lobbying over towards WA MPs on the issue? Yes, we are. Uh, for example, my I now live, I was until recently living in Perth City, which is a, um, a strong Labor voting district. I now live in a Liberal electorate. It's a different experience. And my local MP is a federal Liberal member. So we're writing to her, myself and others involved in the community are writing to her saying, you know, are you aware of these nasty things, these nasty bits in the religious discrimination bill? And one of them, particularly for people living in regional and remote areas, is that the bill allows um, medical people, including psychologists, psychiatrists, even pharmacists, uh, nurses, doctors, pharmacists, to refuse service to LGBTI people on the grounds of their personal religious belief. So, for example, pharmacists could refuse to sell uh, contraception to women. They could refuse to sell uh, uh, PrEP to uh, sexually active gay and bisexual men. Uh, they could refuse to provide hormone treatments for people who are transgender and so on. Uh, this is all LGBTI, blatant LGBTI discrimination, all disguised as religious freedom. But that particular element of the bill most disadvantages um, people in our community who live in the regions because we have fewer options. So if there were a handful of those kind of pharmacists and chemists in the city which refuse service, you could easily go somewhere else, as annoying as that would be. But you don't always have those options in rural and remote Australia. And so the discrimination there is harsher. So we are strongly sending that message to our federal local MP and making that point. And how have they responded? Uh, well, they haven't as yet. <laughs> but um, what we tend to find is that 
the general response at the moment is, look, no bill has been introduced. We'll have a look at it when it comes up. But the reality is they have all seen the draft and the draft um, has only been very, very mildly tinkered with um, uh, and not in a way which makes it better for our community. If anything, it makes it worse. Um, so I think as more and more people come to understand just how nasty that legislation is, just how vindictive it is, and the fact that it was pulled, it, it, it came together purely at the behest of the No campaign. So all of this comes out the back end of marriage equality in 2017. The, the campaigners, the people who lost that campaign, are still distressed and bitter about all of that, and they want revenge. And this is their revenge. The Religious Discrimination Bill is not there to protect religious people. It's there to provide them with a sword so that they can wield that sword against people they don't like. Um, and there's a lot of uh, camouflage in the legislation to make it look like that's not what it is, but it is, in fact, exactly what it is. One of your sounders from WA, of course, is Michaelia Cash, who's been acting in the Attorney General role. How responsive do you find her on LGBTIQ issues? Uh, look, I haven't personally approached her on those issues, um, but... but she does have, I would say, um, a fairly homophobic past. Um, she has uh, done and said some um, nasty things. Uh, one that springs to mind, for example, is during Senate estimate hearings when she questioned uh, why uh, contraceptives, why um, uh, um, uh, condoms were being distributed in uh, asylum seeker um uh, camps, so the, the, the camps where we're currently housing uh, uh, for long periods, uh, male asylum seekers, she was questioning why uh, condoms were being distributed and it was explained to her that there was sex going on uh, in these camps and, and she seemed quite personally mortified by all that and didn't understand it. So there's, I think there's a level of ignorance and perhaps prejudice there which, came, which was illustrated during that particular form of questioning. Um, and she has no particular background of ever saying, that I'm aware of, ever saying anything supportive. Brian, Greg, thank you for your insights. Uh, thank you for all your work with Just Equal. And thank you so much for joining me today on 3CR. You're very welcome.
tell him about it. Anyway, it hurts. Hey, cool thing. Come here. Sit down beside me. There's something I gotta ask you. I just wanna know, what are you gonna do for me? I mean, are you gonna liberate us girls from male, white, corporate oppression? Tell her like it is. Huh? Yeah. Don't be shy. There, cool thing you are and in your face on 3CR with James, joined on the line by April Holcomb from Community Action for Rainbow Rights in Sydney. April, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, James. It's so good to talk to you, April. April, last time we chatted, we spoke about Mark Latham's Education Parental Rights Bill in New South Wales. Uh, can you give us an update about it? Yeah, well, um, basically, he's putting it uh, to a committee hearing. Uh, and that's going to be happening around the 20th of April. He's actually the chair of that committee, so that is not a good sign. Um, and just to reiterate, this bill, if it passed, would uh, sack any teacher immediately uh, if they were to um, stand up for trans students, if they were to um, discuss trans issues in schools. Um, and we've actually also received... Uh, uh, information from Alistair Laurie, who's a um, well-known advocate for LGBTI rights. He actually received an email recently from the Parliamentary Secretary for Education in the New South Wales Parliament, so a Liberal member, who also supports this bill. So there are some worrying signs um, that uh, this bill actually has more um, life in it and potential to pass um, than we may have initially expected, and that's why... Uh, it's so important that we get out there and fight it. It sounds unbelievably oppressive towards gender-diverse students. 
Yes, definitely. Um, you know, Alistair Laurie describes it as, you know, the worst attack this century um, on LGBTI people. And as I said, um, it would, you know, not just uh, affect teachers who would lose their jobs on the spot for, um, for supporting trans students. If the teachers themselves were trans, I don't see how under this law they could even have the right to teach at school. Uh, and for the students themselves, it's already a very difficult situation in schools um, to come out and be who you are. Uh, and the point of this law isn't, um, uh, is basically to drive those people uh, entirely into the closet and to erase them from existence. So this legislation, if passed, would really undermine uh, schools' chances of actually making their, their environment safe for gender-diverse students. Yeah, exactly, and that's sort of the intention of it. Whether it passes or not, uh, Mark Latham is um, pretty uh, determined here, I think, to, um, to send a message to transgender young people that um, there's something wrong with them. And actually, there's nothing wrong with transgender young people whatsoever. And that's uh, why we get out there and we protest. We've got one coming up for April 17 um, at Taylor Square here in Sydney. Um, and we've already had two um, demonstrations that have been really, um, really lively, really youthful and rebellious. And I think those have helped to really cut against the message Mark Latham is trying to send. And that message we're sending is, you know, transgender young people have got a lot of support out there and we've always got their back. You must be disappointed that the New South Wales Premier hasn't just, you know, nipped this bill in the bud and said, look, I'm sorry, but there's no way we're going to support it. Uh, I mean, this has been going on for months, and uh, the fact that she hasn't done that must be giving the legislation some hope and some momentum. Yeah, definitely. Uh, It doesn't really surprise me. This is how the Liberal Party operates. They're the party of the rich and powerful, and they like to tread on anyone who's marginalised. So... um, you know, if you look at the federal level, um, the Liberal Party just voted with One Nation in the Senate there at the federal level um, to pass a, a motion attacking gender-neutral language um, and trying to claim that trans activists are erasing words like mother and father, which is just a ridiculous claim. So I think that the Liberal Party is back on the warpath against LGBTI people. At the federal level, we might even see the return of the... Um, so-called religious freedom bill and the attempt to um, increase the ability to discriminate against LGBTI people there. So we definitely want to, um, you know, force a a, a statement out of the the Premier that um, this bill, that they oppose it. But, you know, we don't just um, we don't just think they're going to do that without us putting a whole lot of pressure out there. How has Labor responded to Mark Latham's education parental rights bill? Have they responded? Well, as far as I know, they have not responded either. And that, again, is uh, incredibly um, frustrating and enraging. And I think, in general, we're seeing that the Labor Party, um, across all levels of government, is not acting as an opposition at all, but much more going with the flow of the Liberal Party's agenda. Um, And so, as I mentioned with the Religious Freedom Bill, um, the Labor Party has also um, been putting a very cop-out position um, on that, on the any potential freedom, religious freedom bill that comes forward as well. So uh, it's pretty outrageous, though, that they haven't um, just really put their statement out there um, at the state level that um, that they're against this bill. And that's why we've got to get out there and protest because we can't rely on any of these people. I think.
Absolutely. Is there anyone in the New South Wales Parliament standing up for trans kids in schools and gender diverse teachers and trans teachers? Yeah, there are. Um, you know, there's the the Greens. Uh, obviously, are taking a, a, a strong uh, position against this bill. Um, people uh, like Jenny Leong and David Shoebridge uh, have spoken out against this uh, this bill. Um, but you know, that won't be enough without us really forcing um, the message out on the streets, which is to say, you can't, you know, you can't get away with this. Um, there will be hell to pay if you even try to move this bill. And that's why our protest is planned to happen the weekend right before the committee hearing on, on this bill. Why do you think the Premier hasn't condemned this? I mean, she, she's been trying to make herself out as, you know, uniting the community in New South Wales. Why isn't she just speaking out? Is it because she, she's hoping to get some kind of polling traction? Like, it's just, it just begs belief. Yeah, well... I mean, it's not impossible that they will oppose it, but I think this is the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party is fundamentally a party of bigotry and discrimination. They, when it comes to the Mardi Gras once a year, some of them will get a photo and a snapshot um, so that they can continue to get the votes of wealthy, um, of wealthy LGBTI people. But the vast majority of LGBTI people out there are facing the kind of issues and discrimination um, that the Liberal Party sees as its goal to actually create you know, problems of um, trying to get a job, problems of, um, you know, discrimination in education, problems of pandering to a right-wing conservative base. That's what they're there to do. So, um, you know, it makes sense in a way to me that um, the Premier uh, would be um, hedging her bet and just trying to wriggle out of this without a clear position. Um, And it's very worrying. It it makes me think that uh, unless we get out there and fight, um, this bill actually could pass, or at least some watered-down version that still sends us backwards. Are you disappointed that uh, the Premier was invited to Mardi Gras by the Mardi Gras organisation, considering she hasn't condemned Mark Latham's bill? Well, disappointed, yes, but not surprised, because this is the problem with... um, the corporatisation, I'd say, of our community in many ways. What Mardi Gras was originally about was about protesting against social injustice, against discrimination, uh, including against, you know, women, uh, Aboriginal people, um, against workers. You know, that's the real spirit of what, uh, you know, um, our community, I think, should be. But basically, um, you know, a lot of people... um, have become very wealthy and comfortable and adjusted to this society uh, of inequality. And so they see Mardi Gras as more of an opportunity to make money, um, to, you know, paint the Liberal Party as a, as a great party for LGBTI people, um, to talk up, you know, banks and other corporations that are ruining the planet. So I think there's a division in our community now, which isn't just about whether you're gay or straight, trans or cis, it's about... You know, are you left-wing or are you right-wing? Are you for um, inequality and discrimination or are are you against it? And I think that's, um, you know, I think community action for rainbow rights is very much on the left-wing side. We're on the side of protests and of um, uniting against oppression. Of course, those divisions really became apparent this week with Mardi Gras, with the Mardi Gras board suspending its members who supported the Oxford Street Mardi Gras march. Uh, What can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I was absolutely shocked to hear this news. Uh, it's an absolute disgrace that uh, these members uh, met secretly and without any notice 
um, decided to um, uh, kick uh, Charlie Murphy and Alex Boucher off the board. They were democratically elected to that board, um, and they helped um, they helped to organise a fantastic demonstration on the sixth of March, where instead of just hanging out in the stadium making money for corporations, uh, we took Oxford Street like we always should, and we said Black Lives Matter, free the refugees, um, and fight these bills. Um, that people like Mark Latham and so on are trying to put. And so for the crime of having done that, for having stood up for social justice, the Mardi Gras Corporation is disciplining those two. And I think, um, you know, Community Action for Rainbow Rights demands their immediate reinstatement. And I think there's been shockwaves in the community about this because most people still understand that, um, you know, we're still a community that has to fight for our rights and our freedom, um, but also the rights and freedoms of other groups. Yeah, I imagine there's plenty of people in the uh, Sydney queer community who are outraged by this. Um, is it even constitutional that the board could do that? I mean, meeting in secret and basically shafting two members, you know, there'd have to be some governance concerns about that, wouldn't there? You know, I, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not qualified to, exact, you know, to comment on, on exactly whether it's, um, it's above board in terms of the, the constitution of, um, of the Mardi Gras Corporation, but... If it is above board, then that's something wrong with with Mardi Gras and, and its corporatization and the fact that it's gone down the road of just supporting the status quo um, and and actually just trying to put a rainbow face on the status quo. Um, so and obviously, if it is uh, not above board, uh, then that decision needs to be reversed immediately. Um, uh, so you know, even if it uh, even if they haven't technically broken any um, regulations here. Uh, which I can't speak to, well, that's still the pro- political problem here of we're not just all one big LGBTI community. We're actually uh, uh, people with all different political views. And those political views, I think, matter more. We've got people coming to our demonstrations who aren't transgender, who aren't um, gay or lesbian or bisexual. But actually, they support uh, protest and they support fighting against the government and politicians. And I think those people are more on my side than, than people who might happen to be gay, um, but who oversee boards and corporations that actually make our lives work. And it sounds like suspending those members or shafting them has kind of been politically counterproductive because it just plays into the, the hands of the accusation that Mardi Gras has, you know, really kind of washed its hands of its protest roots and is more interested in, in corporatization and are uh, courting the pink dollars. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just more proof if people needed it um, that that's where things have gone. Um, and as we go into the future, uh, the question is, uh, well, maybe we can't fundamentally transform the Mardi Gras Corporation. Uh, we should still try to have uh, political presence and intervention each year um, when Mardi Gras comes around. But it's what you do the rest of the year. It's how... It's putting in the effort to organise people, um, ordinary people, and tell them there is something you can do. It's not just about politicians up there, the experts passing this or opposing that. It's about what you do as ordinary people coming together and fighting against injustice. And that's the thing that's actually changed history. Right now around the world, uh, people have been changing history like that. The Black Lives Matter movement proved that in spades as well. Um, And that's the, I guess, what people should take away from this, that we shouldn't be disheartened um, about what a few um, puffed-up, self-important people do, because actually when we come together, um, you know, when we come together on the streets, 
um, and, you know, in our workplaces, in our neighbourhoods, um, and fight together, actually, we can make more change than they can prevent. And in fact, the march down Oxford Street was very well received by the community. It's almost as if um, Mardi Gras shot itself in the foot because uh, that could become a bit of a permanent thing. I imagine it might be continuing in another form next year. Yeah, let's hope so. Let's hope there's a constant um, competition, if you will, uh, or a constant um, contrast between what we need to do, not just as LGBTI people, but as people in our world today facing so many crises and oppression, what we need to do to take action and what uh, people who claim to represent us, um, you know, are, are really doing, which is just trying to um, make money. Of course, you are from Community Action for Rainbow Rights. It's got a proud history of LGBTIQ activism. Tell us a bit about the organisation's history. Yeah, well, um, Community Action for Rainbow Rights has been around for more than 20 years now. Um, it's a Sydney-based grassroots uh, organization. Anyone can come along to organizing meetings, help out to build protests. The real highlight, I think, uh, of our existence has been the 13 years we put in um, from, you know, from the moment John Howard banned marriage equality to the moment we won it. And at, especially that moment, um, you know, we had protests that whole time, year after year, and they weren't very big to begin with. But actually, it built up to something. And by the time you know, the Liberals forced this plebiscite on us. It wasn't just you take an envelope home and you, you put it in quietly and no one knows. We had mass demonstrations around the country that really stuck the boot into the biggest. And I think they've been licking their wounds ever since because we had 50,000 people out here in Sydney, one of the biggest demonstrations in a while. And that, even more than just getting the law passed, really showed the biggest, I think, um, that they're done, that their side's done. But you know, they're always trying to come back. And that's why we're determined that every time they raise their head, we want to get back out there and really make it clear um, that we're only going forward. There's only progress now and they just have to, yeah, they just have to deal with that. You mentioned that Community Action for Rainbow Rights will be conducting some protests against Mark Latham's Education Parental Rights Bill in New South Wales. Give us those details. Yeah, totally. So uh, it's going to be a Saturday. It's going to be the 17th of April at 1pm. It's going to be in Taylor Square, just at the top of Oxford Street. We're going to have a march. Uh, it's going to be a great day. Speakers, all the rest. Um, as I said, we've had a couple on this uh, issue in the last six months and they've been absolutely uh, brilliantly attended and, you know, full of uh, youthful, you know, um, anger and defiance uh, and pride. So, yeah, definitely everyone should come along um, and, you know, let their networks know about it um, and uh, it sends that message out there to trans young people who are, you know, really struggling even today um, and that uh, they're accepted, that they're wanted, they're loved. Um, there's nothing wrong with them um, and there's more people out there who uh, want them to thrive than there are who are trying to um, put them down. April Holcomb, thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. My pleasure, James. Thank you.
Sex Pistols there, covering the easy beats. I'm not your stepping stone. Don't forget 3CR has an awesome binary busting seven hours of broadcasting this Sunday from noon to 7pm. Check it out. It's going to be absolutely amazing. Taking us out other Sundays with joy and I'll catch you next week on In Your Face.
In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.